0: Good morning, everybody. It's always nice to be with you, but especially nice to stand up here and proclaim God's word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Judges chapter 2, where we'll continue where we left off last week. Wrong place. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 20. Actually, the passage today begins in the second half of verse 20, but I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 20 to remind you what we said last week. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 20 down through verse 6 in chapter 3. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, it is only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as leboth Hamath. They were all for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons and served their gods. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word we thank you, Father, that you did not leave us as a people to wander in ignorance, but you told us exactly what your teachings of your word that we were to follow. Please help us, Father, that we may be people of your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to grow in this or through this passage tonight today. We ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you hadn't heard before. I went to college at Louisiana State University, a.k.a. LSU, and my very first semester there, I really started off having a really good time. I met my future bride the very first date almost that I had there. It was a blind date, and I was playing flag football and having a good time with all the new people that I met, and i was there to go to school just like everybody else, so I took it somewhat seriously and went to class and did my homework, and then I had my first test in calculus. And I made a 17 out of 100. (laughs) Now, at LSU, that's an F. I don't know about (laughs) where you went to school, but I didn't really start off too well, and it really put me behind the eight ball because... The calculus class was a five-hour class and so the logical thing to do would be to drop the class and then when you're older and wiser and you've been through your first semester in school take it next semester but because it was a five hour class if I dropped it I wouldn't be a full-time student and that was going to create a whole bunch of problems for me so I had to I dropped another course actually and then had to really bear down on calculus and try to get through it. And I found out later that calculus was one of the courses that LSU, which is extremely easy to get into, is very quick to flunk you out. And and, and so anyway, so I really had to struggle all through that semester, getting help wherever I could. I had to seek out tutoring, anybody that was willing to do that for free. And uh, eventually, I did make the second highest grade in the class, and I made a C. I think the teacher could have been a little more generous, but I was so relieved to pass the course, I didn't care that, uh, you know, I, uh, maybe I'd been cheated, a lot of my friends said, oh, you're going to make an A in the class. I didn't care if I made an A in the class, I just wanted to get through it, not have to take it over. Well, it was certainly the hardest educational difficulty that I ever faced in my life, but I did persevere through it and in similar ways the Lord tests all of his people to prepare them for the life that he wants them to live and we see that in this passage in Judges. In past lessons we have seen that initially that uh, the people of Israel obeyed the Lord. They went into the land they took possession of the land they uh, drove the inhabitants of the land out killing them the way the Lord had said that they do but eventually they became faithless and they began to live amongst the Canaanites that were there and eventually they got to where they were even ruled over by the Canaanites and so the Lord was angry with the Israelites because they had disobeyed his laws and broken his covenant and as a result he would no longer drive out the other nations that were left there in the land. And then in chapter 2 verse 22 it says that God's first purpose out of three for not driving out the other nations was to test Israel to see whether they would keep the ways of the Lord. And this might strike us as kind of strange because God is eternal and he's omniscient, he knows all things, he knows the end from the beginning, because, and he knew exactly, what Israel's response was going to be to keeping his way. And so we might ask ourselves, well, why, why did God test them to see something that he already knew? The only one who is really going to find out something from the test is us or the Israelites, not God. And so it appears that God wanted his people to see how wicked they could be at time rejecting his commandments. And so the Lord's purpose was, okay, if they obey my commandments, then I am pleased with my people. However, if they do not obey my commandments, it will humble them that they'll see that they're not such uh, pristine people after all, that uh, they have no reason to think that they stand in good favor with me. And the Lord had done this with the previous generation during the exodus. We see this from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, and following where it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so the Lord dealt consistently with his people from one generation to another. He dealt that way with the people in the exodus. And now after the exodus is over, he's dealing with these people that were sent in to conquest the promised land. And there's going to be similar results. The result is going to be that the Israelites are going to be humbled But because God is a fair God and a just God, God's justice is going to be exalted. And then secondly, exposing Israel's sin and magnifying God's justice was not the only purpose for the Lord's test. According to the theological word book of the Old Testament, testing was also to refine the character of man that he might walk more closely in God's ways. And so God is not just trying to beat people down to show them how much greater he is than them, but he seeks to transform and refine his people. And we see an example of this in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 and following. It says there, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God." Zechariah speaks of a future occasion in which some people are going to be refined and some people are going to be rejected. And the first coming of Christ is obviously referred to in verse 7 since the Lord Jesus quoted this the night before he died about striking the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But then in verse 8 it says two-thirds and one-third Uh, something is going to happen to each one of them. It may have meant during the time of Christ. It may mean sometime in the future, closer to the second coming of Christ. But whatever time is referred to, the point is that God refines people through testing. The Lord arranges the circumstances of our lives so that we are shaped and trained to live in a manner pleasing to him. And then thirdly, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the text shows that the nations that were left to test Israel. And verse 2 tells us one more purpose of the test, that Israel might learn to know war. The generation of Joshua apparently had not, or the generation after Joshua, excuse me, apparently had not participated in the war of conquest and therefore was ignorant of how to go about it. He wanted them to learn the mechanics of conducting war. And so in Judges chapter 2, since Israel has not kept the way of Yahweh, by following his revealed will, they will be humbled, purified, and trained by God's testing. And how will Israel respond to this testing? Well, the same thing is true of us who live in the days of the new covenant because we find exactly the same word used here that was used to test Israel back during that time. The Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6 tested his disciples in verse 5 when he said to Philip, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And so the Lord wanted Philip to see how much his faith had grown in the Lord Jesus Christ. If he did not trust that the Lord Jesus could uh, provide the needs of the people on this occasion, then he didn't have the sort of faith that he needed. And so the Lord Jesus, in testing Philip in this way, was doing exactly like God was doing in the past, that Philip would be humbled and therefore would grow in his faith and it would help him in his future ministry. And although the word is a different word, the same concept of refining involved in testing is found also in another place in the New Testament, in the word suffering. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says about us, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Now your translation may say tribulation or trial rather than suffering, but all these words refer to trouble involving affliction in some form. And so from Romans chapter 5, verse 3, both the Old Testament tests and the New Testament suffering produce or refine character, indicating that the experience that we go through is to draw us more closely to God in addition to humbling us. And so just like in the Old Covenant, God uses testing in the New new Covenant to help us see what is in our hearts, presumably to humble us when we disobey Him, and also to refine our character and train us to be what we should be. Well, what does this look like? Well, you know, back when I was working as an engineer, my company decided to have a team-building exercise, and we all went over to Dave and & Buster's, and we uh, had another company that was our partner on this particular project that we were working on. It was a Nigerian company. And so I had a very long day uh, that day, and then then in addition to that, I had to go that night and, and uh, play these silly games at uh, Dave & Buster's with... You imagine grown men and women out uh, doing some of the things we're doing. But anyway, uh, at, at the end of that day, I was really tired, and by that time, my head was pounding. And so was, as I was walking out the door, there was one of these Nigerian engineers named Larry who came up and asked me to give a right, give him a ride home. Now, he was temporarily living in the United States, and so he didn't have a car to get around with, and so... Uh, I really didn't, at that point, want to have to give Larry a ride home, but being a Christian, I didn't feel like I could say no. you know And on top of that, being a minister, I really didn't think that I could say no on, on top of that. That really would have been mean spirit and say "No, find your own way to go home." But no, I didn't do that. Thankfully, I was able to restrain uh, the emotions that were going through my mind. Well, at any rate, we got in the car, we started home, and Larry told me how to get to his house, which I didn't have any idea how to get there. And he told me to go the wrong way. And so I went in the wrong direction. Then I had to turn around and go all the way back the other direction. And so by that time, I was really annoyed with Larry. And I was angry, although I was very skillful in not letting Larry know that I was angry about that. So Larry didn't know that I was angry. But by the time I got home, my wife found out I was angry. <laughs> and, uh, you know... I mean, didn't my circumstances know that I was tired and worn out? Did my circumstances know that uh, my head hurt and I really didn't feel like taking Larry home? But God controls all my circumstances and your circumstances as well. And angry was not the Christian response to that circumstance. So I failed the test just like the Israelites did. So when we face these trying times, we have to train ourselves to first recognize that all of the experiences that we have, the Larrys that come into our life, are people from God's hand. Now, we don't always know the reason why these people come into our lives, but at the very least, sanctification is God's purpose. He may have many purposes in our lives for these experiences, but you can always count on God is trying to sanctify me. God is trying me, testing me to build my character so I become the person that he wants me to be. And so to do other than to obey God in these circumstances only reveals our sin. It humbles us and invites further testing and possibly, if our sin is flagrant enough, it even invites God's chastening anger against us. Well, in the last two verses, the author announces the summary of the two introductions and the following theme of the book of Judges, the Canaanization of Israelite society. The Israelites were being conformed into Canaanites rather than destroying them like the Lord had said to them. The Israelites were residing with and intermarrying with the pagan peoples around them, but God had told them not to do so. He had told them this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and following, And it says there, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you: the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, that you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And the reason that the Lord gives here for not intermarrying with the pagan people around them, it's not to maintain ethnic or racial purity, but to maintain spiritual purity. If the Israelites intermarried with their pagan neighbors, naturally because of the closeness of the relationship between husband and wife, you're going to affect one another with your views. When you become one flesh with another person you become like the person that you marry. And so you're going to be sympathetic to their views on a given subject. And so if you marry an unbeliever, naturally you're going to be in sympathy with his or her views on religious matter. And so the Israelites would be tempted to worship their false gods. But Israel intermarried anyway. And they probably thought, well, why not? in everyday interchange between the people. They're just everyday average folks like me. I mean, like when I go to all the activities around my neighborhood, when I go to the city market or when I go to the PTA meeting and all that, they have the same sorts of concerns as I do. So they're really not so bad. And so what's the the big deal with not mirroring people who don't have the same religious views that I do? Well, the reason is, is that God says, don't do it. And he also says, if you do do it, that the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you if you were living back during that time with the Israelites. And not only was that true for them, it's also true in the new covenant for us as Christians. We learn this from the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, where he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is to be free to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, if a woman loses her husband, she's free to be remarried. But she's only free to marry someone who is a Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, yeah, Kim, but that's talking about widows. And I'm a man. That really doesn't apply to me. Okay, well, I've got another verse for you. Another verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, this verse is not just about marriage. This is talking about any intimate relationship that you willingly enter into where your Christian beliefs may very well be compromised because of your association with that person well what's the most likely relationship that you're going to have where that could happen marriage for the reasons that I've already said because of the intimacy of the relationship between husband and wife being one flesh with the husband and wife you're going to change to be like one another You're going to take on some of the expressions that your wife or your husband used. They talk a particular way, you're eventually probably going to do exactly the same way. That was the way it was for me in my 50 years of marriage. My wife became somewhat like me, and I became somewhat like her. And so naturally, it's going to affect your religious views as well. And so in the case of, uh, for us, we are just like the Israelites at this point. The Lord forbids us from marrying with unbelievers. And so territorial accommodation with the pagan peoples or allowing them to coexist in the land alongside of the Israelites resulted in marital union with the pagans. And this in turn yielded spiritual integration with them. The Israelites served their God according to the last part of verse 6. And so the pagans led the Israelites to forsake the God of Israel and worship their idols. And the modern listener should hear a warning from this for his or her own life. In the new covenant, God does not require us to have territorial accommodation. That is, he doesn't tell us that we are not to live in the same part of town with unbelievers, but this does... Uh, forbid worldview accommodation. This means acceptance of the unbelievers' philosophy of life. It leads to taking on their relivi- religious notions. And the most common idol of our culture is the materialistic mindset with its emphasis on money and possessions. As it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Covetousness is either the desire for what someone else has or desiring more things than desiring God. In other words, God is to be the ultimate person or thing in our life. And we shouldn't misunderstand uh, at this point. God does not forbid us not to work, not to have money, not to have material things, but when we value these things more than the Lord and the things of his kingdom, then we become idolaters just like the Israelites were being in the book of Judges. We have to give our ultimate allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to anything else in our life. But the satisfaction of our desires is really found in a right relationship with the Lord. And this relationship requires exclusive or ultimate allegiance to the Lord. And allegiance to any other thing above him is a transgression of his covenant, whether it be old or new. And so what one owns and consumes is not the most important measure of one's life. It's whether he or she knows the Lord and endeavors sincerely to be what the Lord says. This is what will bring us joy and contentment and peace in this life. So the marvel in this whole episode is that in spite of the fact that Israel disobeyed the Lord flagrantly, that the Lord did not cast them off. He continued with them. Uh, Instead, he placed them under a disciplinary judgment, uh, a time of testing, so there will still be an opportunity for the Israelites to show that God, the true God, is their God, and his ways are important to them. They are extremely important to them. And it's the same with us today. God is long-suffering and slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And one of the great benefits of studying the book of Judges is that if you have the water mentality like I do of God or like I did at one time of God, thinking that God is just this big giant person with a fly swatter and he's walking around overing us and the first time we get out of line, he smacks us with it. We see in the book of Judges that that's not the way he dealt with Israel. He let Israel go for years without bringing, smacking with a fly swatter on them, selling them into the hands of the other nations. And so if he did so with them, will he not also do do so for us? He gives us a time for repentance, a time to show that the straight and narrow way is our path, the one that we choose. And so if you're here today and you've never chosen to walk that path with the Lord, you've never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible would say to you, as it says to everyone that's here, repent, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To repent means to cease your rebellion against God, to turn away from sin, and to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, putting all of your reliance on him for salvation, trusting in who he is and what he does. The Lord Jesus is the Son of of God. In fact, he is God in human flesh, And he paid the penalty for the sins of his people when he died on the cross. And what he requires of people is that they come to trust in his sacrifice for them to atone for their sins. And he kept God's law perfectly and when we exercise faith in him we are counted as righteous in God's sight not because we are righteous but because his righteousness is put to our account. And so God reckons us as being righteous and therefore he grants us forgiveness of our sins and gives us eternal life. I encourage you if you've never done this before to seek this salvation that God so mercifully and graciously offers to us. If we have walked this narrow way, if we have been Christians, let us be patient. If God tests us, if he sets before us the vain idols of our culture. Let us resist those things as well. And if times are difficult for us at times, we have to remember that everything that comes to us always comes to us through God's hands. And so let us be patient, therefore recognizing that God has given plenty of demonstration both in our lives and in history of his goodness and his justice Let us be patient with him, knowing that he has a good purpose for allowing what's coming in our lives. Let's go before the Lord again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're not always grateful for the difficult things that we face in life, whether they be injury or sickness or financial problems or marital problems or whatever problem that we have. We acknowledge, Father, that they are unpleasant, but we also acknowledge that you are righteous and just and good and that you have a good purpose for bringing these things into our lives. Help us, Father, grant us an extra measure of your grace during these times. Help us to be patient. Help us that we do not become angry and resentful at the circumstances that we face. And we give thanks to you, Father, for all that you'll do in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.